Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Thank you very much uh, for the warm welcome. It's great to be here. It's a privilege to be part of this convention. And uh, it it gives me an opportunity to publicly uh, state my claim to fame because my wife is a second cousin to Maud Kells. That's got to mean something in Northern Ireland these days. So it's, it's great to be here for that and for many other good reasons, of course. Um, uh, what I'd like to do, first of all, before I, I share, is to show you a short video which uh, compacts the history of OMF, CIM, into about three and a half minutes. So 150 years into three and a half minutes, this video is going to go at quite a speed. So hold on to your seats Uh, Pay attention, and our friends at the back will make this happen. Thank you. Our story begins on the 25th of June, 1865, when James Hudson Taylor cried out to God on Brighton Beach for willing, skillful workers to join him in taking the gospel to the unreached inland provinces of China. And so the China Inland Mission was founded. Within a year, Taylor, his family, and 16 workers set sail aboard the Lamamur to China. By the end of 1866, 24 workers were active in four stations across inland China, preaching the gospel and planting churches. Other missionaries of the time sought to preserve their British ways, but Hudson Taylor was convinced that the gospel would only take root if missionaries were willing to identify with the culture of the people they wanted to reach. Let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese, that by all means we may save some. The following years saw a period of expansion for the China Inland Mission. By 1888, the CIM had sent 294 people to 14 provinces. Between 1898 and 1900, during the Boxer Uprising, hundreds of missionaries and thousands of Chinese Christians were put to death. The CIM lost 58 missionaries and 21 children. Through this time of persecution, the CIM grew in number to 933 people, and by 1939, almost 200,000 Chinese and minority people had been baptized. A turning point came in 1949, when Mao Zedong and his Communist Party took power in China. Despite wanting to stay, by 1950, it became impossible, and the China Inland Mission had to leave. It was an uncertain time, but hope came when the decision was made to move out to new countries. Headquarters were established in Singapore, and workers spread out to surrounding countries, taking the gospel of Jesus in all its fullness with them. The name was changed to the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and then to OMF International in the 1990s. As OMF workers have sought to reach the vast and diverse people of East Asia, their skills and ministry have had to develop and diversify too. Alex rode his motorbike around Thailand, handing out Bible tracts. David broadcast Christian radio programs into Cambodia. Makino and Izu disciple students in Thailand. Kirk travels to the nomads of Mongolia, sharing the good news of Jesus. Irene trains Sunday school teachers in the Philippines. Carolyn prepares new Asian believers in the UK to return to East Asia. Sarah mentors marginalized women through jewelry making in China. And Peter teaches the Old Testament in Malaysia. 
In 2006, Dr. Patrick Fong became the general director, the first Asian leader to hold this position in OMF International. Today, we have over 1,400 workers from over 40 nations serving among approximately 100 people groups in East Asia, as well as among the Asian diaspora in Europe, Africa, the Americas, New Zealand, Australia, and in Asia. This is how God has used us for the past 150 years. How will He use you? Well, I'm not going to talk about the past. I want to talk about uh, the future. But I want to remind you, as if you need reminding, of those words of Jesus at the end of Matthew 28 where he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Tonight, I want us to look briefly at the challenge of mission in 21st century East Asia. And I want to highlight six particular strategic priorities uh, others could be, could be, could be uh, rolled out this evening, but I'm highlighting six in particular. But I want you to pay attention, first of all, to this uh, helpful quotation, I think, from um, Johannes Verkul, Dutch missionary, uh, missiologist. But am I, am I communicating with my screen? Perhaps not. Maybe you can override my inadequacies at the, at, the, at the pulpit here. Yes, so listen to these words from uh, Johannes Verkul, commenting on these verses at the end of Matthew. He says, Christ promises to be with his church through all of her days. As she discharges her missionary calling, the church must forever be asking, what kind of day is it today? For no two days are alike in her history. And in order for us to be faithful in carrying out our missionary calling, we need to be looking at our contexts. Whether that's Bangor or whether it's Beijing, we need to be asking, what kind of day is it today for our church here, for our mission there? East Asia has changed dramatically over the past 150 years. OMF has changed as well. The UK churches, UK church scene has and is changing. So what are the priorities for mission among East Asians today? And what is our role, uh, British and Irish Christians, in, in, in the, the mission of God in East Asia? What is our task? What is our role well, let me highlight these six strategic priorities. Number one, beyond going beyond pioneering to partnering. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? Well, pioneering is still required, but the manner in which this pioneering work is done and the role of the mission agency in it are changing. It has been said that we are shifting from a 200-year paradigm where the cross-cultural worker, the missionary, has been the key player to a place where the church among the peoples of East Asia is seen as the key player. 
And I think that that is right. OMF has the incredible privilege of serving East Asians in a context where God is growing his church. And what God will do in Asia in this century is a story that we are privileged to be part of. Not as benefactors, but as participants, and perhaps in some cases as spectators of things which God does quite apart from us or in spite of us. Earlier this year, I spent a morning with Michael Griffiths. Michael Griffiths is a name you might remember. He was the general director for OMF back in the 1970s. He was the principal of London Bible College. He's written a lot of books on mission. Some of you may have read them. And I was interviewing Mike in preparation for an OMF event, celebrating our 150th anniversary. And I was discussing with Mike, among other things, some of the weaknesses that OMF had during his time as general director in the 1970s. And Mike was very open. He was very honest. And he looked back at those years, and this is one of the things he said. He said, one of our weaknesses was always wanting to do it ourselves rather than trusting national leaders in the churches where we were working. Now, for sure, things have improved. Lots of things have improved in OMF, but there's still work to be done on that front. A couple of years ago, I was in Singapore. We had a meeting of OMF leaders we invited the Methodist bishop in Singapore, Robert Solomon, to come and, and speak to us from the book of Ephesians. And, and we were asking Bishop Solomon about the relationship between the national churches in East Asia and mission agencies like OMF. And, and here's what he said to us in a very gracious, humble way. He said, in the context of the globalized world and church, it is clear that the days of unilateral mission action without reference to existing national churches and leadership and without consulting them and seeking collaboration are over. Partnering with the growing, maturing churches in East Asia is crucial to seeing pioneering mission move forward and continue and please don't think that world mission today is about the Western church handing on a baton to the churches of the global south or to East Asia. You may have heard that kind of analogy shared that now, you know, we've got our problems in the West. We've got our own things to deal with here in Northern Ireland and UK, wherever it is. Now it's the turn of the church in the global south. Here's the baton. You run with it. You get engaged with world mission. No, no, that's a very unbiblical, unhelpful picture of partnership and mission. A better picture, which you've probably heard, is in the rowing boat. We are in a boat, and each of us in the worldwide body of Christ have an oar in our hands. Our position in the boat may change. We may not always be the stroke. We may have to sit somewhere else, but we're in the boat. We've got an oar, and we've got a place to play. We've got a part to play, and we must keep on playing it. But we've got to be humble enough to take the different place and listen to our brothers and sisters in East Asia. And OMF is increasingly needing men and women who are prepared to partner with and serve the churches in Asia in order to continue to pioneer into those places where the gospel is as yet not seen and not heard. 
And I might add, on this point of partnership and working together with others, there does need to be increased partnership for the sake of mission among mission agencies. That is desperately needed. In 1900, there were uh, apparently around 600 foreign mission-sending agencies. Today, there's an estimated over 5,000 mission-sending agencies. And sometimes I think they're all here in Northern Ireland. There are so many, and that, that number just grows every day. Everybody wants to start their thing. But, you know, it's time to work together. It's time to demonstrate our unity in the gospel for the sake of pioneering mission. Well, partnering, that's one strategic priority. Number two is about going beyond the Pauline to the Timothy Apollos model. You're going to have to override. Ah, there we go. Thank you. Going beyond the Pauline to the Timothy Apollos model. There is still a place for sending out cross-cultural workers from the UK and from Ireland. But our role as UK Christians in world mission is changing. The Paul model, pioneer missionaries, are still required. But increasingly, the need is for men and women of the Timothy, Apollos type, men and women from the older churches, the churches from the West, like the UK and Ireland, who have the biblical grounding, the cross-cultural gifts, and the skills to work with existing but newer churches in, in Asia in the task of mission. The UK church has a rich biblical and theological resource and heritage uh, that needs to be made available to the newer churches in East Asia. And, and that is not about us going to Asia or anywhere else and simply giving them our theology and, and telling them this is the way we do it and therefore you must do it this way as well. No, no. Uh, one Korean uh, leader, Bong Rin Ro, uh, he once said, theological, uh, he, he once said, theological ideas, uh, we're away ahead here, theological ideas are created on the European continent, corrected in England, corrupted in America, and crammed into Asia. And he, he said, shoving Westerners' Christianity upon Asians is no longer acceptable. He went on to say, and this man didn't mince his words, and he's a friend of OMF, he said, it is my firm conviction that the chief service of Western missionaries is to train Asian Christians in Asia so that these nationals can reach their own people on the grassroots level with the gospel. Now, Timothy and Apollos type guys, and, and ladies too, they are sensitive to these sorts of issues, willing to work with the existing church, just like Timothy and Apollos were from Jewish backgrounds, solid in the, in the scriptures, but they were able to work with the new Gentile churches and not create little Jewish churches in the process, but be open to the work of the Spirit in that, in that task. And Timothy and Apollos-type missionaries are sensitive and they are characterized by these sorts of, 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 uh, of characteristics here, grounded in scripture, skilled to enable new churches to self-theologize, to work the theology out, in their context, for themselves. They have a vision to equip the newer churches to be salt and light across all the areas of society. And they see themselves as scaffolding, not a permanent fixture of the church. Timothy and Apollos-type missionaries 
Are people willing to serve and to learn from the churches and the Christians in East Asia? The great missionary pastor, Charles Simeon, a missionary-minded pastor in the Church of England, he once wrote of the three lessons which a minister has to learn. Number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. And he went on to say, how long are we learning the true nature of Christianity? And these three lessons also capture the true nature of 21st century mission and what is really required in these first two strategic priorities that I'm, I'm highlighting this evening. Humility. Humility and service. Well, priority number three is about extending the mission field into the workplace. One of the best ways for East Asians to see and hear the gospel and to have regular personal contact with Christians is for Christians to be rubbing shoulders with non-Christians in East Asian workplaces. And the Cape Town commitment gives uh, church leaders and mission leaders a challenge on this front. They talk about church leaders needing to understand the strategic impact of ministry in the workplace and to mobilize, equip, and send out their church members as missionaries into the workplace, both in their own local communities and in countries that are close to traditional forms of gospel witness. And they say to mission leaders, you need to integrate tent making, tent makers fully into the global missionary strategy. And one of, one of the best ways of doing that is by having people working in the workplaces in East Asia. And, and that, that working in a professional capacity gives credibility. It, it gives a clear identity. Doing a real job demonstrates whole life discipleship to those who don't know the Lord Jesus. And it models to Asian Christians what it means to live a mission-minded, kingdom-centered lifestyle as a, a, a university researcher, an IT specialist, a university lecturer, businessman, engineer, IT specialist, I mentioned that one, teacher, whatever it happens to be. What, what Asians need to see is how is this gospel fleshed out in real life? And there's no better place for it to see that than in the workplace. And just to be clear... You know, tent making it shouldn't be seen as, as a cover or a vehicle by which a person pretends to be doing a job but then spends most of their time doing something completely different, such as evangelism. That, that lacks integrity and, that, and, and simply reinforces the secular sacred divide, which has been a great obstacle to the mobilization of all God's people in the mission of God. What we must aim for, what we would pray for in those sorts of situations is, is that in doing our work with integrity, relying on the Holy Spirit, we're asking him to create the space for those gospel conversations and encounters with colleagues, for letting our gospel values be seen day in and day out, and about valuing the work itself, doing a good job for the glory of God. And there are tons of opportunities for that in East Asia. And, and, you know, you don't actually have to join a mission organization to do that. You'd think I'd be trying to get you to join OMF, but I, I'm not necessarily. I met a lovely couple in our church in Kent two weeks ago 
that the husband's an engineer. The Lord challenged him to go to Africa, use his engineering skills there. They're plugged into the local church. They're doing evangelism. They're modeling what it means to be. He's modeling what it means to be an engineer in the workplace in a very difficult context in Africa. And I praise the Lord for them. They're not with a mission agency. But if you're with a mission agency, it does help to bring a certain strategy to what you're doing and some support and some encouragement along the way. But if we want to encourage indigenous missionary movements in East Asia and other places of the global south, then I think we do need to see beyond the traditional professional missionary and beyond the traditional mission agency. There is still a place for them, but we increasingly need different, more flexible, lightweight structures and networks that can facilitate and enable entrepreneurial people to be equipped to be cross-cultural witnesses for the gospel in the workplaces of Asia and elsewhere. And then number four, beyond the rural to an urban mindset. Research by Global Connections in the UK has found that too many mission agencies operate with a rural mindset and focus when it comes to world mission. That urban mission and urban realities for mission are are not sufficiently on the radar. By 2050, some 70% of the world's population, about 6.3 billion people, will be living in cities. And it's important to remember that when we talk about urbanization, we're defining that in terms of a city's ecological footprint. It's, it's about the social, geographical, economic, cultural impact that a city has way beyond the geographical boundary of that particular city. And this has huge implications for mission and how we engage with people in cities. Here's a slide that gives you a sense of... Uh, uh, what, what, what urbanization looks like today. If the urban population of the world lived in a 100-story in a skyscraper, look, do you, can you see that? Look, look, at, look at the Asia floor. It's massive. You've got 50 stories would be filled by peoples from Asia. Massive cities, huge numbers of people in Asia. The CIM, the OMF, is no stranger to mission in East Asia uh, and and East Asia's urban centres. The cities, in fact, uh, were part of Hudson Taylor's strategy from the moment the first team of China Inland Mission missionaries arrived in 1866. Uh, As Marshall Broomhall, in his book By Love Compelled, says... Hudson Taylor's aim was to occupy the strategic centres... First, the provincial capitals, then the chief prefectures, and then the smaller towns and villages. He, he had a vision that included the cities. According to Andrew Davy, being urban will be the challenge of the 21st century. And thinking about that challenge recently, I was struck by a poem by George MacDonald. And, and if, you're, if you're thinking about mission and you're wrestling in your heart about working in a city, getting involved in urban mission, and you're wondering whether this is right for you, listen to this poem of George MacDonald's. I said, 
Let me walk in the field. God said, Nay, walk in the town. I said, There are no flowers there. He said, No flowers, but a crown. I said, But the sky is black. There is nothing but noise and din. But he wept as he sent me back. There is more, he said. There is sin. I said, But the air is thick and fogs are veiling the sun. He answered, Yet souls are sick and souls in the dark undone. I said, I shall miss the light and friends will miss me, they say. He answered me, Choose tonight if I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, Is it hard to decide? It will not seem hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I cast one look at the fields, then set my face to the town. He said, My child, do you yield? Will you leave the flowers for the crown? Then into his hand went mine, and into my heart came he, and I walk in a light divine, the path I'd feared to see. You can't underestimate the challenge of working in the city. I remember visiting an OMF couple a couple of years ago in China. They lived at the top of an apartment block. I expected to see a wonderful view. I just saw smog, and that was typical of their view. Raising a young family in an Asian city is not for the faint-hearted. But here's a city that needs gospel witness. There's Hanoi a city of 7 million. There are less than 5,000 Vietnamese Christians. It's possibly the East Asian capital with the lowest percentage of evangelical Christians. Is the Lord challenging you about Vietnam, about Hanoi, about city ministry? Well, let's move quickly to strategic priority number five. This is a bit longer in a title, anyhow. Going beyond monoethnic to multi-ethnic churches and the clearer demonstration of the reconciling power of the gospel. I doubt if you would disagree with me that reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel and central to what mission is all about. And I think the best way for the reconciling power of the gospel to be seen and heard is through the diverse community of a, of a local church where people of all sorts of cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds worship and witness and serve together in Christ. Too often in world mission, we've been so driven by people group thinking, which is helpful to an extent, but we've been driven by that thinking and, and monocultural church planting strategies And we've forgotten our call to a ministry of reconciliation. We need church planters in East Asia who can see beyond the planting of churches for just one ethnic group at a time and who recognize the biblical imperative to establish communities of reconciled people from various backgrounds who model the gospel of peace. This must be the way in diverse contexts. And it's what you see happening in the book of Acts. And I think Vinay Samuel puts it very well when he says, and he's talking here about uh, 
bridging racial divides, but it's applicable in many other aspects as well. He says one sign and wonder, biblically speaking, that alone can provide the power of the, that can prove the power of the gospel is that of reconciliation. Hindus can produce as many miracles as any Christian miracle worker. Islamic saints in India can produce and duplicate every miracle that's been produced by Christians, but they cannot duplicate the miracle of black and white together, of racial injustice being swept away by the power of the gospel. Now, we saw some of that in Malaysia. Malaysia is a very diverse place uh, with a history of racial violence, and there's racial tension there beneath the, the surface, and the government and the authorities are always trying to find ways to integrate people, and they have education policies and this and that, but it doesn't work. And where do you find a reconciled community in Malaysia? You find it in the church because it's only the gospel that substantially brings people together. The power of this gospel of reconciliation is needed all over East Asia, as well as here at home. Whether it's North and South Korea, North and South Vietnam, racially fragmented Malaysia, violence between Muslims and Buddhists in South Thailand or Myanmar, or with the Han Chinese and the minorities in China, as well as in and between churches themselves, peacemaking must be on the mission agenda. Reconciliation is the key and the church is the key player because it's our task to proclaim and live this reconciliation to the world. And then finally, and this perhaps is a little ironic given I'm talking a lot about strategies, but I think that we need to actually go beyond strategies to relationships. The story of the China Inland Mission was very much a story of partnership between senders and sent, between missionaries themselves. And we need to remember that you know, sending, sending Christians to the other side of the world uh, does not automatically make them abnormally cooperative. I can give you lots of examples of that. Uh, but, but really, the story of partnership comes into its own when you look at the history of the China Inland Mission and you, you see the partnership between missionaries and outstanding Chinese Christians, for whom often the risks were much, much greater. The great historian of the CIM and Hudson Taylor in China, A.J. Broomhall, he talks about the Chinese pioneers whose companionship, the the Westerners' success depended. The Chinese pioneers on whose companionship the Westerners' success depended. And you could probably say that about every context of mission around the world, whether it's India, Africa, Latin America, or wherever it happens to be. And as I close, let me take you back to uh, the context of the photograph there in the slide. That's the Edinburgh World Missionary Conference in 1910, which brought together over a thousand mission and church leaders to plan for the evangelization of the world. The delegates were overwhelmingly white, Western, and male, but the most quoted and perhaps the most influential speech was by a South Indian uh, delegate, pastor. And he said this, 
Through all the ages to come, the Indian church will rise up in gratitude to attest the heroism and self-denying labors of the missionary body. You have given your goods to feed the poor. You have given your bodies to be burned. We also ask for love. Give us friends. Be our friends. Build relationships with us. And you know, Western Mission has been criticized for its managerial approach to the missionary task, with its emphasis on strategy and plans and goals and key result areas and all the rest. Now, there's a place for plans. There's a place for strategies, and we need them. But you know, mission is essentially about relationships, relationships between the missionaries themselves, missionary relationships between the missionary and, and the churches, relationships between the missionary and the people around them in their community. And as Andrew Walls puts it, a missionary is someone who lives on terms set by others for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And fruitful mission emerges from men and women who have learned to live humbly on terms set by others, who have taken the time to learn language and culture, who've put down roots into a particular community, and through those friendships, and in the midst of those relationships, and in the midst of all the ups and downs and turmoil of life, have let the gospel shine and take shape. And people have seen it and heard it and said yes to it. And if you want to be part of that kind of missionary community, of building relationships and being a part of fruitful mission that lasts, then come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to take it further. Thank you. Thank you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.